Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. To start out, Dr. Eric Feigelding is with us, the epidemiologist and health economist. He's an adjunct senior fellow with the American Federation of Scientists, formerly a faculty member and researcher at the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can follow him on Twitter, which is where I hang on his every pronouncement, at Dr. Eric Ding, E-R-I-C-D-I-N-G, D-R-E-R-I-C-D-I-N-G, over on Twitter. One of the must-follow Twitter posters out there. Dr. Feigelding, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you with us. Can you describe for us the difference between something being pandemic and something being endemic? Because it seems to me that coronavirus is on the verge of becoming endemic, unless I'm misunderstanding that word. Right. Thank you for having me. I think epidemic and pandemic are obviously talks about the rising of a new virus, a pandemic being a global version of a new virus. But the issue with endemic means it's been with uh, that it's been with us for so long that it just lives with us. We just can't sort of like the flu. can't eradicate it. And you, but usually it means it has like a low level of seriousness and severity. Like we have endemic chicken pox. You know, kids eventually get chicken pox. Um, endemic uh, common cold and and usually these kind of things. I would not describe the SARS-CoV-2 as endemic yet. It's very much a brand new virus. And it is extremely deadly that we should not just live with it. At yeah. Time. Well, I guess my, my larger question then is, you know, we're all envisioning, or we were prior to the Delta variant, a time when enough of us were vaccinated that we could just, you know, pull the plug on this thing and declare it like we did with polio and smallpox. You know, it's gone. And it certainly doesn't seem like that's going to be the case, even though it now has been, at least for those people who are vaccinated, reduced from something that's going to kill you or put you in the hospital down to something that gives you a bad head cold. But, you know, how do you yeah. see this shaping out with where we are at now in the United States? Yeah, I think before the Delta variant, there was a really good chance we could eradicate it. Uh, but with the rise of the Delta variant, it's going to create a different type of problem because the Delta variant, you know, there's data that not only does it circulate in minks, but 50% of all wild deer in Michigan are now infected. Wow. And, and if it's just deer that's infected, you know, many other animals like, you know, rodents and other animals or raccoons potentially are someday as well. But the, the issue is like it, because it's so much more contagious, and now it's hard to stop. And if it has an animal reservoir to live in, particularly dogs or cats, eradicating in humans means you know animals that could potentially come back and infect us, even if we eradicate it for animals. And Dr. Larry Brilliant says it's when you have heavy animal reservoir infection, you can't eradicate it anymore. I would not call it endemic yet because. Endemic, by definition, means low severity and living with us for a long time. Hopefully, we will eventually get to a point where it's low severity, but 
in India, don't forget, the Delta variant, also formerly known as the Indian double mutant variant, it killed about one to three million people in two months. So this is something that we cannot just live with. This is something that on the human scale and toll, we should not ever live with. But at this rate currently, it could, with so many vaccine-hesitant people, it could burn through the forest. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't live with a... If you're in a forest, you shouldn't live with forest fires. You still have to put them out. But the problem is, if you don't stop it with anything else, it's going to burn through the forest until there's nothing left. And that is the calamity that we're seeing in some countries that's now faced with the Delta variant on an astronaut. If this, if this virus has mutated in a way that allows it to easily jump into other mammals, you mentioned you know half the deer in Michigan now have it, and there's a lot of deer in Michigan. I grew up in Michigan. How far away are we from it jumping to dogs and cats? And then if it jumps into feral dog and cat populations, uh, you know, this becomes a reservoir that echoes back against humans constantly. Yeah, and the bad news is it has already jumped into dogs and cats. That's already been proven. And the issue has, can it jump back? We technically don't have any proof that it can jump back to us, but... Mm -hmm. It, you know, lack of proof is not proof that it doesn't do it happen. Right. Um, we know it jumps into minks, and we have proof it jumps back from minks to humans on mink farms. This is where you hear all the millions of minks infected, and and so we've actually proven that it jumps into minks, mutates in minks, and jumps back into humans with a new mutated form. That's already been proven, and uh, the other thing is previously uh, the old Wuhan version 1.0 could not infect mice. It could not, because unless the mice had a certain uh, receptor, it just could not infect mice. Guess what? And according to the studies a couple months ago, it doesn't, eat, alpha variant, which is the UK variant that developed over the winter time, we don't even, it doesn't even need the special gene um, that the old Wuhan version needed. Now it can directly infect mice. If it infect mice and rats, oh, you know that it, this is going to come back to us. So it doesn't now, require the... We've seen it. So basically the writing's on the wall that it could jump back to us. And the question is, eventually will it become by itself mutated so mild that we can live with it? Or is it going to be that we're going to need a burn through before the world hits that level? And going through a burn through in which the forest gets burned of all fires before the, the wildfire ends is not the outcome that we want in this society. But at the stage where we're headed in Florida and many other places where, where there's no mass, very low vaccinations, that's where we're headed. And that is the really scary future. Burn through meaning lots and lots of people dying, getting sick and dying, which raises the question. There's this new variant, the Lambda variant. I, I was reading about this in, in Nature yesterday, that, that they believe that it, it is uh, more deadly and perhaps more contagious than even the Delta variant. What do we know about that? Oh, hang on just a minute. I, I'm sorry, we just hit a break. I thought we still had a couple of minutes. Uh, can you hang on? Can you stick around with us, Dr. Sure. Dr. Feigelding? Okay, great. We're talking with Dr. Eric Feigelding the epidemiologist and health economist with the American Federation of Scientists, formerly a faculty member and researcher at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Eric Ding on Twitter. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're talking coronavirus in general, COVID specifically, with Dr. Eric Feigelding right after this. So, Dr. Feigelding, we're, uh, to continue our conversation, tell me about what you know about Lambda, about this Lambda variant. And the Lambda variant is a new variant. It's still not a variant concern yet. It's still a variant of investigation. And the question is, how dangerous is it? We really don't know. It's so early, we don't have enough clinical studies on Lambda. Lambda is one of those big big question marks, but it has the hallmarks 
of potentially a, a really dangerous one because it has lots of bad mutations. Uh, it's been found in several countries as well. Um, whether or not it's faster than Delta, there's one way to know. If it start replacing Delta uh, in, with increasing frequency, then you'll know it's faster than Delta. Um, so, we it's knew just it was faster than any other variant virus because it was replacing all the other strains, like wildfire. Yeah, so it's, we it's, haven't seen the lambda to replace Delta at a high high risk pace yet. Yeah, so it's it's just essentially a Darwinian process. Where is the lambda right now? Has it popped up in the United States yet? It has popped up in the U.S. It's very rare. We don't have a good assessment. It, it's, it's many countries around the world, but. Again, there's, there's many variants that will pop up. It has not been rated as a variant of concern. There's a variant of under investigation, variants of interest. Those um, are pop up, uh, you know, dime a dozen. But for that to become a variant of concern, we have to see some real smoking gun, see some, you know, fire in the theater kind of uh, moment before we shout on it. And that's in certain ways. That is a very subjective thing. Like, WHO declared Delta a variant of concern back in uh, early May, first week of May. Uh, USCDC didn't declare it a variant of concern until mid-June, June 15th, a whole month and a half. And I think we lost a lot of time containing Delta because WHO said it's, it's bad. WHO says, put your mask on. And CDC is like, nah, we don't need to do that. Ah, it's not a variant of concern. No, 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 we don't need to do that. Del, uh, you know, the WHO has a different standard of care uh, than, than uh, we do. Um, and, you know, CDC in certain ways hand waved for an extremely long amount of time. And now here we are. So I, I'm obviously on the precautionary principle side, uh, but I think, you know, precautionary with data. And I haven't seen really that much data on Lambda yet. So let's, let's be patient. Let's... Uh, not jump the gun. We, it's not like we don't have a wildfire right now, and it's Delta. The same thing that controls Delta would control Lambda. Um, but we just have to, our main problem, it's kind of like fruits and vegetables. Everyone knows you need to eat your fruits and vegetables. Most people don't eat their fruits and vegetables, right? Uh, everyone who smokes knows smoking is bad, but they still smoke. A lot of this comes down to behavior and behavioral economics, not just epidemiology. And this is why I'm a behavioral health economist as well, because I know that in the end, you, in society, you need carrots, and sometimes you need sticks to make sure people do what they need to to protect themselves. And right now, it, we need to start using sticks more to really stop the epidemic. Yeah, I'm with you. And we'll be back with you on the other side here, Dr. Feigelding. If you could stick around for another, just maybe another five minutes or so, great. We're talking with Dr. Eric Feigelding. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Eric Ding. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Lifelines by Dr. Lena Wen, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health is the subtitle. This is from the prologue. The first sign of something wrong was the sign of a high-pitched squeak. What's that? Christine whispered. I had just opened the door of the apartment complex my family shared with hers and two others. We looked at each other as the noises continued. It was a wet rattle and a wheeze. Then I heard someone shouting in rapid-fire Spanish. I grabbed Christine's hand and we ran toward the noise. It was the apartment next to Christine's. The door was open and we saw that the noise was coming from Tony. He was in the third grade, two behind me and Christine. Tony was sitting upright, straight as a board, clutching the sides of his rocking chair. His cheeks were streaked with red. His breathing was short and shallow. Each exhale ended in a wheeze and a squeak, each shorter than the one before. His eyes were wide and beads of sweat ran down his face. He looked terrified. I know the feeling well. Asthma. Tony's grandmother was yelling and begging us to help. There was an inhaler on the floor. I grabbed it and held it up to Tony's mouth. I pressed it, but nothing happened. I got my own inhaler out of my backpack and pulled his lips open. I pressed twice. I took it out and tried again. The medic medication dribbled out of his mouth. His eyes were starting to close. His breathing was slowing and I could barely hear the wheezing. His lips were turning purple and then blue. Christine's mother had heard the noise. She held the phone in her hand. We need to call 911. No, 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 the grandmother yelled. Policia, no, no policia. Not police, the ambulance, medical, doctor, 911. 
I was holding Tony up and he felt heavy in my arms. His grandmother shook him and begged him to wake up. She thumped him on his back. She grabbed him by his hair. Christine's mother had been a nurse back in her home country. She lifted Tony and laid him flat on the floor. She pressed on his chest and breathed into his mouth. Eventually, she stepped back and shook her head. The grandmother began to wail. We listened to her scream and cry all night. Do you think Tony would have lived if we'd brought him to a hospital? I whispered to my mother as we lay in bed. In Shanghai, where I was born, I'd had such severe asthma that I ended up in the hospital nearly every month. It was terrifying to fight for air, but I always knew that once I got to the hospital, the doctors would make me better. Maybe he was so sick that nobody could have helped him, my mother said. What about 911? In school, they always say call 911 and an ambulance was coming. Well, who knows who else would come? Maybe the police. They could all be deported and sent back to Mexico. So I said, if something happens to you, I shouldn't call 911 because you'll be sent back to China. What about father? What if his ulcer bleeds and he's very sick? Think about what happened to your father in China. Going back is not better than death. But that's not right, I remember saying. How come other people can call the ambulance and go to the doctor? Why is it different for us? My mother's answer fixed my future. Life is like this for some people. Maybe one day you can change things for people like Tony and your father. That night cemented my decision to become a doctor so that when I encountered another Tony, his life would not have to end in a preventable death. 15 late years later, I did meet another Tony. He too was a third grader with severe asthma. I got to know him because he and his mother would come to the emergency department every week, sometimes multiple times. He always had the same symptoms, wheezing, coughing, and gasping for breath. When it was particularly bad, he'd get that familiar frightened look in his eyes, the look of not knowing whether the next breath would come. Each time, I'd had every medical tool at my disposal. I'd put a mask on him to administer oxygen and nebulizers. I'd give him steroid medications. I'd monitor his breathing. Most of the time, he'd get better within a couple of hours and go home. But he kept on returning week after week. He and his mother were homeless. They'd shuttled between shelters and the homes of different relatives and friends. His clothes always reeked of cigarettes because his mother's boyfriend and her family smoked. At some point, they moved into a home of their own, but his asthma didn't improve. They were in a row house where all the units were vacant and harbored mold and other allergens. Two blocks away, an incinerator pumped out toxins. This Tony was being treated at one of the best hospitals in America. Every time he got sick, we'd make him better. But medicine could not treat the poor air quality he breathed. Medicine could not change the poverty, instability, stress, and powerlessness of his and his mother's lives. This Tony, too, was a testament to the notion that the currency of inequality is years of life. This is a reality I knew all too well from my childhood. My family and I came to the United States from China with less than $40 to our name. We lived paycheck to paycheck and worried every month about making the rent. Inequality left a mark on everyone I knew. My classmates who became victims of gun violence, their families who were decimated by drug addiction, our neighbors who died young from preventable diseases. I became a doctor to save Tony. I chose emergency medicine so that I could treat everyone and turn no one away, not immigrants afraid of deportation or people who couldn't pay. But working in the ER was where I saw the limitations of healthcare. I could resuscitate a young man dying from gunshot wounds, but what could I do about the violence on the street? Violence so consuming that elementary schools didn't have recess outdoors. I could stitch up a child's laceration, but what could I do about the ache in her belly because the last meal she ate was her school lunch two days before? I could prescribe drugs for diabetes and heart disease, but how could I recommend healthy eating knowing that the corner store my patient depended on for food sold no fruits or vegetables? The book by Lena Wen, MD, is titled Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity 
And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Eric Feigelding, the uh, epidemiologist and uh, former faculty member and researcher at the Harvard Medical School about the coronavirus. Speaking of Lambda, you know, you mentioned that the Lambda uh, variant, uh, you know, is just popping up in a few places. It hasn't been identified as a variant of concern. Uh, we still need to learn more about it. But uh, looking at viruses and their evolution through a, through a, uh, a kind of a neo-Darwinian lens, it seems like, on the one hand, a virus would always want to, uh, a deadly virus, would always want to mutate in the direction of becoming less and less deadly so it would have more and more hosts and a greater chance of transmission. Yet that's not what happened with smallpox. Or, or maybe it is. I, I guess smallpox wiped out uh, Native American societies in ways that were way beyond how, how it did uh, European societies who had been living with it for 500 or 1,000 years. But clarify that for me. How do viruses evolve in relationship to how deadly and how contagious they might be? And how might that inform us in expectations with Lambda and Omega and, you know, going all the way through to Omega, going, going forward with new variants with regard to this, uh, this virus? You know, the old saying was that viruses will become less deadly. That's not always true. Um, like with SARS coronavirus, it's really been sobering for a lot of the virologists who've said uh, that previously. I think there is truth that a virus can't be too deadly. Like, for example, uh, Ebola and some of the other, like MERS, uh, Ebola had a 50% uh, mortality. MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, uh, in, like six, seven years ago, was about uh, 35% of fatality. It's a, if you got infected, your fatality was 35%. That's a little bit too high for it to become a pandemic. The pandemic, the perfect virus for pandemic is extremely contagious. Um, it kills uh, a decent number of people, but not enough that it, it, it creates a breaking system. And if, if you're at 35% mortality, it, it creates a breaking system against uh, spreading. You need it to be asymptomatic enough, enough, uh, and mild enough in the people that it keeps going, but severe enough in um, the remainder that it really cuts them down. Uh, in terms of way, that's the combination of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and Wuhan was, you know, perfect at that moment because no one had any immunity. It was like basically a virus that arrived in. Um, you know, like just like the Europeans brought it to the new world, no one had immunity, and it ripped through the population. Now we obviously have some immunity to say from a combination of natural immunity plus vaccines, but then this gives way to Delta, which is much more contagious, uh, more severe, but also very one-dose vaccine invasive. You know, what we used to have, uh, one dose used to be like 75% efficacy. Now one dose is less than 30%, 18%, um, in fact, for AstraZeneca one dose on, in one study. And, of course, two dose, very evasive now. We're no longer 95% efficacy. We're talking about 
60, 70%, and one uh, study showed 40% efficacy. That is how you survive. And not necessarily being more deadly, but more evasive, but still keeping your, you know, deadly slash more severe properties. You being the virus. Crossing into 35%. But that, you know what, if we had a 35%, it would just be, it would be like bubonic plague bad. But in certain ways, even at the 2% CFR that we are seeing, um, 1%, uh, you know, the actual infection fatality ratio, including the asymptomatic, was about 0.6. That is enough to do everything that is done to us in the last year. And now Delta variant is four times more severe among the unvaccinated, four times. As in, if one person went to the hospital before last year for capita, four times, uh, four times that now for Delta. And this is where Delta has taught us it is more severe and it is the 2.0 pandemic virus. And it's, it, we cannot rely on just being, it will become less severe over yeah. time. Doctor, doc- we can, you yeah. know, I think we should just be re- really, really cognizant. This is still gonna be with us for quite a while and very dangerous. Yeah, uh, we have a little less than a minute before we're gonna hit a hard break here. Um, it, it seems to me like the CDC has gone gun shy. You mentioned how you know they, they missed a few months of time with the Delta variant. Um, and a lot of our listeners are, 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 are saying, you know, we never should have stopped masking, for example. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Oh yeah, I've been saying that forever. The, the moment CDC announced it in May, I was shouting at the rooftops I was shouting on CBS News that CDC made a grave mistake. Now everyone says, oh, yeah, yeah, CDC mistake. Oh, back, back then, a lot of people <laughs> didn't want to say that. But mm-hmm. I've been saying CDC's been making a grave mistake from the very beginning. And it's, it's because we know asymptomatic transmission's been there. Now, Singapore data shows there's asymptomatic transmission, there's mild transmission among the vaccinated. The proof was there in the pudding. It just, if you had looked for it, it was there. And CDC just kind of like put his head in the sand like an ostrich and just ignored all those data. And yeah. I think that's the gravest Not a good concern. Thing. And that's why it was a big mistake. Dr. Eric Feigelding, you follow him on Twitter at Dr. Eric Ding. Hang on just a second. To the Tom Hartman program. Dr. Feigelding, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always great Thank talking you. with you. Thank you. So uh, Louise and I have uh, some friends that we keep in touch with, mostly by email and follow on Facebook. And last weekend, not this weekend that just ended, but the one before that, they took a short trip uh, down to Phoenix. And when they came back, one of the uh, one of the two in the couple was feeling poorly. Right, a little sick, a little head cold, little yeah, just don't feel good. And I'm like, you've got breakthrough COVID. And they're like, yeah, I don't think so. And I'm like, well, you know, you can buy these test kits now online for, you know, uh, I mean, real ones made by like Abbott Laboratories, the Binax one. Um, They're like $20, $25 in that neighborhood. Um, You know, Amazon sells them and and pretty much, you know, any other, they're easy to find. Uh, and, And they sell them in drugstores too if you want to walk into a drugstore. <laughs> so why don't you get yourself tested? Because, you know, if you do have a breakthrough infection for the next 10 days, you really should isolate yourself because you can infect other people just as easily and just as readily as somebody who is not vaccinated. Even though, you know, you're just having a head cold because you're vaccinated. Um, you know, if, if you came into contact with somebody who wasn't vaccinated, it could be a dangerous event for them. And uh, they're like, well, you know, we're just going to ride it out. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, has this happened to you and to people that you know? It, it, it seems like there's an era, uh, an area of, oh, and one of the other comments that, that one of these people made was, you know, I, I'm like, you could infect unvaccinated people and they could end up dead. And the response was a variation on, you know, that's their choice by being unvaccinated. That's not my choice. Why am I having to worry about this? You know, yes, I'll, you know, we'll wear masks when we go out, 
But why do we have to be the ones who are worried about people who chose not to get vaccinated? Why do, why do we have to change our lives and go out and pay for test kits and things and quarantine ourselves and all this other stuff just because some ass is believing Donald Trump and, and reading crazy stuff on, you know, Dr. Mercola's Facebook page and stuff like that? You know, my answer to that, I mean, I, we didn't get into a big fight about this. A, a lot of this is kind of a debate going on in my own head. But my answer to that is humanity, right? You know, we're all human beings here. We, we have, you know, an obligation to each other, even the idiots among us. And, you know, and a lot of the people who are reading Facebook and, and listening to Trump and, and, you know, and watching Fox News, they're not evil people. They're not terrible people. You know, some of them are. <laughs> but, you know, some of them are, are doing those things because it reinforces their white supremacist worldview and all the other stuff that goes along with being a Republican. But... I have to believe that many of them are just people who got caught up in the moment. And, uh, you know, it's like this, this couple in, I think it was in Georgia. Uh, they're all over the news right now. They've got four kids. They're both, they both just got intubated yesterday, um, which means either one of them might die. I mean, when you get intubated, that's like, you know, half, about half of the people never come back from that because they, they have to make you unconscious or else your body will constantly try to reject this giant tube that they shove down all the way down into your lungs. And uh, it's serious stuff, terrible stuff. And so, you know, th these people are, are openly, aggressively, or at least they were before they got intubated, begging you know, their friends and their children and everybody that they know, take this thing seriously. So, so what do we do? What do we do? Kirk in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kirk, what's on your mind today? Tom, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I almost feel like it's a rant today that I want to partake in. Go I, for uh, it. Well, I'm a father of four. I run a small medical device uh, distributorship out of Lakeland, Florida. And if you know anything, that's between Tampa and Orlando. Mm -hmm. And so we're having this COVID outbreak. <clears throat> and so the reality, it's a good segue with what you just talked about, which is that my reality is that these kids are supposed to go back to school in a couple of weeks. Our governor has kind of pushed off mask mandates, saying it's an individual responsibility. The other side of that is that one of my employees, actually her whole family, is suffering from COVID, from this variant. So I want to talk about the economic impact of COVID-19 on the small business owner. I want to talk about my experience, too, is that I worked for a huge orthopedic manufacturer in 2018 and had a really big account that they just arbitrarily took away from me in 2019. And then um, in 2019 and into 2020, they won these sole source contract awards with CHS Hospital and HCA Hospital. And basically were, because of the supply chain shortage, asking me to go into hospitals, you know, to train staff, nurses, doctors, that staff to, to use this equipment. And, uh, you know, as a 1099 contractor for, a, it's one of the world's, two of the world's, there's two of the world's largest orthopedic manufacturers, this being one of them, you know, they didn't offer to, I ended up selling them masks. You know, it's, it's, this is the irony. They never sent me one back. They would send me into hospitals. I'd have to wear my own mask. They, about six months into the pandemic, they sent me a, a cloth mask and a two ounce bottle of hand sanitizer saying with you every step of the way. And, and, and so my point is, uh, listen, I'm so uptight and up, I'm frustrated. And I, and I want to go back to the, uh, what's going on right now in the pandemic, too, which is that it goes back to your book on uh, Secret History of Hospitals, uh, where, you know, right now um, in the medical device industry, uh, I, I even sell COVID-19 test supplies. It's not like I'm trying to pander equipment. But the point of this is, is that we're having also this crisis where we have big private equity getting into healthcare. And so my analogy today, and I heard it said so well, was that big private equity firms are buying allotments of uh, gloves, masks, uh, things like that that hospitals need. And they're working it out with manufacturers way in advance. And so people like me, small business, really don't have access to that unless, yeah. again, I'm willing to partner up. So I'm always a fan of a solution to a problem. So my solution to the problem is 
I'm working on a co-op. I would really like to start my business as a co-op to be able to spread that. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I offer to my employees. As and it's, and yeah. it's right. I, I, yeah, I, I I'm with you, Kurt. I want to get uh, more callers in here, so I'm right. I'm going to move along. But uh, did you make your main point? The point that you wanted to make? Yes, it's just it's a conundrum, yeah. and that uh, again, if you'll address private equity in this too, it's just that uh, again, oh, quite, very, private equity is ruining everything. I mean, they're buying newspapers and shutting them down. Local newspapers all over the, uh, the United States. They're driving the real estate crisis. They're doing all kinds of terrible stuff. So, but Kirk, thank you for the call. Uh, James in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, James, what's up? Yes, yeah, so I'm calling in reference to the call that was. He was a black man, and he was making the comparison with the shot that was given to Oh, the, uh, yeah, people. the black guy who called in and said that he wasn't going to get the vaccine because yes, of Tuskegee. And I, and yeah. I called, right, and I called to concur with him because I feel the same. You were saying to him, well, what if you have cancer? Well, let's just go for a minute. You just got a $26 billion award for opiate, okay? And this award was for what? Because an opiate has spread. Well, who gives these opiates out to people? Doctors. Doctors give this. Who gave this uh, syphilis to black men in there? Doctors. No, actually, the, the, the Tuskegee the experiment was black men who had gotten syphilis from having sex with people, and they, they yes, told and them they that they were treating them, them, and they didn't treat them, which is just exactly. as terrible. But, 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 uh, but you know, I mean, where, where we were doing biological warfare was against Native Americans with, uh, with smallpox exactly. before that. But, exactly. but, but, James, you know, yes, medicine has a checkered history. This exactly. isn't part of it. This history. isn't part of it. You've got 300 million vaccines have been given to Americans. Nobody has died from any of the vaccines. 610,000 Americans have died from not having vaccines. 99.99% of hospitalizations are among people who are not vaccinated. And James, if you don't get a vaccine, you're taking your own life in your own hands. And that is crazy. There's been no research to show that. That, I'm sorry, you don't need the research, James. All you have to do is read the headlines. 99.9% of the people in the hospital right now in America are unvaccinated. Vaccinated people are just saying, hey. Those are headlines. No, you're okay, James, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go down this road with you. If, if, if you're not convincible, then I'm going to stop. Ed in Redondo Beach, California. Hey, Ed, what's on your mind? Well, good morning, Tom. Uh, I've had the pleasure to speak with you a few times in the past, and this is the first time I think that I've actually disagreed with you. And it has to do with the COVID passports. And I'll stipulate up front, you know, this is real. The COVID disease is, is a real problem. A good friend of mine actually has it right now, and uh, he's fortunately been vaccinated. So you know, hopefully it'll be the milder situation as it works its way through. But with all that said, I can recall in years past you talking about the dangers of creating a papers please society, you know, like the ones you know that we spot in the middle of the last century, um, uh, you know, Germany and so forth. And there's a difference between the police walking up to you randomly on the street and saying, "We want to know who you are and why you're here." There's a huge difference between that and a restaurant owner saying, "You can't walk in here with that cigarette." You can't walk in here without any pants on. You can't walk in here if you're carrying a virus. Let me explain a little more what, I, what, I'm, where, what I'm getting at, because I, I don't disagree with everything you just said here. Um, but here's the thing. When we create a, a digital passport, you know, we red card, green card, everybody's smartphone, um, you know, that's, that's the modern version of the papers, please. No, it's and, not. It's not at all the modern no, no, no. version of the papers, please. What it is no, no, is no. proof that you've been vaccinated. It's the exact same thing your 10-year-old needs to, to get hold, to enroll on, in a new on. school. Hold, hold on, hold on. Here's well, quit, quit going back to that analogy because it's a BS analogy. I know it's the one that the Russian trolls are promoting all over the world and it's got a whole bunch of people in France all hysterical, but it's a BS analogy. These are not the police. These are, this is your local restaurant. This is, you know, if somebody's going to visit me in my studio, they're going to have to prove to me they're vaccinated. I'm not going to let them in. It's a private business. No shoes, no shirt, no vaccine, no service. Sorry, buddy. That's got nothing to do with your papers, please. Please hear, hear me out. Technologies combine. And for however noble the reason, when you create a technology, an infrastructure of exclusion where certain people are excluded, um, this is not yeah. people being excluded. This is people being included. I am saying, and Ed, I'm sorry, I'm sorry we're out of time. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, 
Everybody seems to have an excuse. Oh, you know, we shouldn't have vaccine passports. Oh, we shouldn't have va- We shouldn't get vaccinated. Come on, people. This is not rocket science. This is not complicated. I get it that you've got, you know, the, the United Arab Emirates sponsoring trolls who are trying to scare the hell out of people in America. Don't be one of those You're people. Listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? Hey, Professor, I heard a rumor. Check me out. Help me out with this one. I understand that 12 million people, 12 million, you can count, 12 million people, you're ready to get put out their properties, got their apartments or whatever, right? Today. Most of them going to be kids. Now, I heard that I heard that the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, they got some influence. They got some influence. They could stop all this. Between the CDC and, and, and Mr. Biden, they could stop this. Now, they want to always point to, uh, uh, to the Republicans because they're in this bubble. They're inhumane. We got that. But this one's on us. This one's on the Democratic Party. They could have just something to stop this. Now, I'm not, true. I'm not sure if my facts is true or not. That's why I'm checking with you. Is it true that the CDC and uh, President Biden could have prevented 12 million people from being put out in the streets because they considered it a, this is a one of them times we got an epidemic of virus. We can't have 12 million people running around in the streets, right? They could have stepped up and did something about this. Am I tripping or am I right on the money? Well, it's, it's a, a little more complicated than that, but you're, you're broadly right, Morris. And it's, it's real unfortunate. What happened was we had um, the federal government saying that, uh, you know, we were going to uh, ban foreclosures, you know, or, or kicking people out of their, out of their uh, rented homes, uh, foreclosures. Um, we were going to ban that to, uh, until a certain point, or Congress did, uh, to, uh, I'm not sure if there was a specific date or until the, the immediate emergency was over, um, uh, June. And it got appealed to the Supreme Court. And it went before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, okay, this you know, law has to end at a certain point, and so we're going to say it has to end at the end of July. And, and, and then Brett Kavanaugh, in a separate opinion, came out and said, and if you guys try to do this again without Congress, we're going to strike it down. And so it theoretically went to Congress. Now, there are folks who are arguing that the Centers for Disease Control has the power under a separate set of laws to say this is a national health emergency and during national health emergencies we have extraordinary powers and we're going to stop um, you know, evictions. Uh, the, the argument that was made at the Supreme Court was that this, does, this has nothing to do with medicine. Whether somebody is evicted from their home or not, uh, you know, yes, you can, you can require people to wear masks. Yes, you could even force people to get vaccinated if you wanted to get really draconian. But what does that have to do with being kicked out of your house? And that was the argument that, that all the conservatives on the Supreme Court embraced. And so what that means is 
that in all probability, if the CDC were to say you can't kick people out of their house because it's a public health emergency, the Supreme Court would just strike it down. Um, but they haven't said it, so we don't know. On, in, on, the, on the other hand, back on, on Thursday or Friday of last week, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, um, came out and said, we are going to extend a, uh, a moratorium on, uh, on foreclosures and evictions. And uh, it's just being ignored. I mean, you know, it's, a, again, people saying, you know, the, 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 the thing being that uh, most of the states that could enforce that or the in, uh, various enforcement agencies are saying, you know, that goes in the opposite direction from the Supreme Court decision. So, you know, the bottom line is Congress, a week or so ago, when they saw this train heading for this wall, should have passed something. It certainly would have been blocked by the Republicans in the Senate anyway, but they should have done something, Morris. And so, yeah, to a certain extent, this is on us. Make sense? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yes, Thank you, Morris. Good talking to you. And it's good to, you know, clarify those things and understand how they all work. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a minute. Stick around. Mike in Fontana, California. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom, I just uh, I wanted to send out my hope and speedy recovery for Randy Rose. You know, she was tested. She got vaccinated months and months ago. And she, the other day, she was tested positive for COVID, and she's on 10 days isolation. I just want to know, really, is this shot working? The shot does work. It, the problem is with this Delta variant, you can still get COVID even though you've had the shot. That's the bad news. The good news, and you, and you can be contagious to other people, which is why you have to you know, quarantine yourself. The good news is that you're not going to die, and you're, not gonna, and, and you're almost certainly not going to end up in the hospital. Ninety-nine point something percent of all deaths are among unvaccinated people over the last 30 days, and 97 plus percent of all hospitalizations are among unvaccinated people. And when you look at intubations, people who, who need to be sedated and have a tube shoved down their throat, that's around 98 to 99% unvaccinated people. So yes, the vaccine, and this is why the CDC is saying, even if you're vaccinated, wear a mask because you may be spreading the virus and you may receive the virus and you don't wanna do either one of those things, even though you're vaccinated. We have to think of this Delta variant as an entirely new disease. I got an email yesterday from a guy saying, hey, did you know that the fastest rate of contagion is among vaccinated people? Uh, therefore, these vaccines are useless. No, no. It's a, yes, there's, a, there's a, a substantial increase in spread of this disease among vaccinated people, but it's not serious disease. What we should be looking at is serious illness and death. And there it is entirely unvaccinated people. I'm, I'm sorry to hear about Randy. I'll have to check in with her and see how she's doing, if that's the case. But, you know, it's like this thing is everywhere. And she's in Florida, too, which makes it particularly difficult. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Holly in Washington, D.C. Hey, Holly, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, sometime earlier you shared a perspective about presidential pardons that basically anything that is issued before the president leaves office will stand. And I got a different perspective from somebody I'm following, uh, Glenn Kirshner. You might see him on MSNBC. Yeah. Anyway, he said a couple things that that are useful uh, uh, for, for the mill. Accepting a pardon is an admission of guilt. Number one. Mm-hmm. Number two. Number two. He, I don't think this has ever been tested, but his position is, Glenn's position is that you can't pardon a co-conspirator of a crime that you committed. That right. That won't that's never been tested yeah, at the federal level. It has, I think, in some state courts, but um, yeah, maybe wrong. But I would love to, yeah, I would love to see that tested because that would be like the dominoes going down and they would have to indict uh, Trump in order to effectuate the negate the the pardons, right. and my fingers are just crossed that <laughs> yeah. that that happens. Yeah, I just wanted to share that because it's a lot of people think there's it's never you know, like it's it's just a given, and I don't believe it is. It's Not good. in this circumstance. Yeah, it's good stuff, Holly. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for that. Uh, it's yeah. you know a little more grit, as she said, grist for the mill. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. Yeah, I I had remembered that. Mike Pence's brother, Greg, has been a congressman for a while. Mm-hmm. And I looked up, you know, besides his scandal with selling um, 
racist stuff in his flea markets. I looked him up, and he voted against certifying the election, while Hmm. his brother, they had a noose out for him, was trying to get the thing certified. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, it didn't matter, blood doesn't matter, that, you know, his brother could have been killed, and he still voted against him. Yeah, that's... uh, that, that is an interesting data point, Bill. Thank you for that. Martha in Indianapolis. Hey, Martha, what's on your mind today? Well, I was in Indianapolis. Now I'm in Oklahoma. Oh. However, okay. I'm calling about Speaker Pelosi's apparent reversal on some key progressive issues. I saw Speaker Pelosi use a right-wing talking point talking about student debt relief about how those with a child in college won't want their tax money to help pay for another people's education. Mm. I also saw part of Crystal Ball's interview with Bernie Sanders where he indicated that, you know, there are certain key issues that are moving behind the scenes that we can't know about. But, you know, it is catastrophic to getting people's issues addressed when our speaker makes what I think such a divisive and disheartening comment. Yes. Uh, I don't disagree, Martha, that... Uh, you know, and I think that she's wrong. I do think that the president has the power to uh, eliminate at least a large chunk of student debt, uh, probably the majority of it, the federally funded student debt. But that said, you know, if she screws up a couple of things, she's doing so many things right and well and, you know, just giving it to the Republicans in so many ways. I'm not ready to throw her out. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, 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 you know, it's on balance. I'm very happy with Nancy Pelosi, but I, I get your point, and I don't disagree with it. Jim in Riverside, Florida. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Good. Uh, Tom, I, I, we've got a two-parter, if I, if I may, and uh, I'd like your input on it. Number one, I don't think that uh, we'll have, we will do anything with the homeless as long as we have uh, the hedge funds owning millions of properties all over the United States. Not just head funds. tax write-offs. You've got, you've got uh, t- uh, millions of properties, re- residential properties, that are also owned by uh, foreign, foreign entities, uh, people yeah. and large investment groups in Saudi Arabia, in China, in other countries. And, uh, you know, uh, there are some countries that say you can't own property here unless you're a citizen. And yeah, I, I've been thinking maybe that would be a good idea. Yeah, and number two, the president asked the governors to give $100 to everybody who hasn't been uh, vaccinated to kind of put the carrot in front of them so they could, right. you know, so they get vaccinated for 100 bucks. Well, Ron DeSantis in Florida is taking $400 million out of that fund, and he's giving it to the first responders and some teachers, uh, select teachers. He paid $3.6 million to a company to go ahead and ferret out the ones he's going to give it to. And, you know, the thing about it is that's Democratic money. And what he's going to do is put his signature on it and send that $1,000 checks out to these people for, you know, to say, oh, look what a great guy I am. Elect me president. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that's where he's that's what he's focused on is he wants to be the next Donald Trump. And And, uh, and, I don't I don't go ahead. And Tom, you're the smartest guy I know. Okay, thank you, Jim compliment accepted and let me just redirect that ron DeSantis is not the smartest guy any of us know but he is very ambitious and he's very cunning i think we we must take him seriously we'll be back from The Death of Truth by Machiko Kakatani. Uh, the subtitle is Notes on Falsehood in the Age of Trump. This is from Chapter 1, The Decline and Fall of Reason. In his 1838 Lyceum Address, a young Abraham Lincoln spoke to his concern that as memories of the Revolution receded into the past, the nation's liberty was threatened by a disregard for the government's institutions, which protect the civil and religious liberties bequeathed us by the founders. To preserve the rule of law and prevent the rise of a would-be tyrant who might, quote, spring up amongst us, sober reason, quote, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason would be required. To remain, quote, free to the last, he exhorted his audience, reason must be embraced by the American people, along with, quote, sound morality and, in particular, a reverence for the Constitution and our nation's laws. As Lincoln well knew, the founders of America established the Young Republican on the Enlightenment principles of reason, liberty, progress, and religious tolerance. 
And the constitutional architecture they crafted was based on a rational system of checks and balances to guard against the possibility, and this is amazing, in the words of Alexander Hamilton, quote, of a man unprincipled in private life and bold in his temper, one day arising who might mount the hobby horse of popularity and flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day in order to embarrass the government and throw things into confusion that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. End of quote from Alexander Hamilton. The system was far from perfect, but it has endured for more than two centuries thanks to its resilience and capacity to accommodate essential change. Leaders like Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., and Barack Obama viewed America as a work in progress, a country in the process of perfecting itself. And they tried to speed that work, mindful, in the words of Dr. King, that progress is neither automatic nor inevitable, but requiring of continuous dedication and struggle. What had been achieved since the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement was a reminder of all the work yet to be done, but also a testament to President Obama's faith that Americans, quote, can constantly remake ourselves to fit our larger dreams, end quote, and the Enlightenment faith in what George Washington called, quote, the great experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. Alongside this optimistic vision of America as a nation that could become a shining city upon a hill, there's also been a dark, irrational counter theme in U.S. history, which has now reasserted itself with a vengeance, to the point where reason not only is being undermined, but seems to have been tossed out the window, along with facts, informed debate, and deliberative policymaking. Science is under attack, and so is expertise of every sort, be it expertise in foreign policy, national security, economics, or education. Philip Roth called this counter-narrative the indigenous American berserk, and the historian Richard Hofstadter famously described it as the paranoid style, an outlook animated by heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, in conspiratorial fantasy, his words, Hofstetter's, and focused on perceived threats to, quote, a nation, a culture, and a way of life. Hofstetter's 1964 essay was spurred by Barry Goldwater's campaign and the right-wing movement around it, just as his 1963 book, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, was conceived in response to Senator Joe McCarthy's notorious witch hunts and the larger political and social backdrop of the 1950s. Goldwater lost his presidential bid, and McCarthyism burned itself out after a lawyer for the U.S. Army, Joseph Welch, had the courage to stand up to McCarthy. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Welch asked. Have you left no sense of decency? The venomous McCarthy, who hurled accusations of disloyalty against Washington, quote, the State Department harbors a nest of communists and communist sympathizers, he warned President Truman in 1950, was rebuked by the Senate in 1954, and with the Soviet's launch of Sputnik in 1957, the menacing anti-rationalism of the day began to recede, giving way to the space race and a concerted effort to improve the nation's science programs. Hofstadter observed that the paranoid style tends to occur in episodic waves. The anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, know-nothing party reached its height in 1855, with 43 members of Congress openly avowing their allegiance. Its power quickly began to dissipate the following year, after the party split along sectional lines, though the intolerance it embodied would remain like a virus in the political system, waiting to reemerge. In the case of the modern right wing, Hofstadter argued that it tended to be mobilized by a sense of grievance and dispossession. Quote, America has been largely taken away from them, he wrote, and they may feel that they have no access to political bargaining or the making of decisions, end quote. In the case of millennial-era America, and much of Western Europe, too, these were grievances exacerbated by changing demographics and changing social mores that had made some members of the white working class feel increasingly marginalized by growing income inequalities accelerated by the financial crisis of 2008 and by forces like globalization and technology that were stealing manufacturing jobs and injecting daily life with a new uncertainty and angst. Trump and nationalist anti-immigrant leaders on the right in Europe, like Marine Le Pen in France, Geert Wilders in the Netherlands and Matteo Salvini in Italy would inflame these feelings of fear and anger and disenfranchisement, offering scapegoats instead of solutions. While liberals and conservatives worried about the rise of nativism and the politics of prejudice, warning that democratic institutions were coming under growing threat, the death of truth. Jerry in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, you are on the air, Jerry. Hi, Going back to the COVID little misinformation, 
Mm-hmm. Just to remind everybody, a doctor, a PhD with an MD, has spent a lot of time and money getting that certificate from the state they're in. They're mandated by federal law. Any vaccine that has a uh, reaction that is abnormal, that information must be turned over to the CDC. So the reports at the Centers for Disease Control is only showing three cases of the J&J of blood clots, mm-hmm. and that's it. Right. Out of millions but and millions of doses. Before you uh, start talking about something that involves misinformation, it's just not in a doctor's playbook to start falsifying records. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Jerry, and and uh, I, I think it's really important that we that we have some trust in our medical community. Jerry, thank you very much. It's Raven in Medford, Oregon. Hey, Raven, what's up? So I'm a Navy guy that was forced to wear a pink during the AIDS pandemic. Really? In the Navy? Um, yeah. By I, way I, of uh, identifying you as a person who had AIDS or as a as a person who was as gay? A person who had, as a person who had AIDS. Wow. I'm sorry to so hear that. I can, so I can tell you, well, I would still do my service all over again. Mm-hmm. Right. But what I wanted to say was that as a 35-year-old survivor of, like, the first, I guess you could say it was the first mm-hmm. modern pandemic, mm-hmm. and being forced to wear pink and everything I went through is ridiculous. The non-vaxxers complained that... Um, this is a violation of their rights if their company orders them to get vaccinated. Because as a person who went through that and who was part of a group who was afraid to give their SSI numbers because of talks of camps, no, I know what a violation of rights is. Yeah, and this ain't bad. this is not even, this is so far from that. This is so far from what I was forced to experience. Yeah myself that is ridiculous raven i have to run but thank you for sharing a compelling story with with me and with our listeners i i I truly appreciate it thank you we'll be back tomorrow same time same channel and in the meantime don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport it requires all of us you me all of us to get active to participate to show up and not just to vote we have to be ongoing active so get out there get active tag your it we'll see you tomorrow have a great afternoon You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.